The Booknook on WYSO was presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Wright Memorial Public Library, Clark County Public Library, Tip City Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, and Washington Centerville Public Library. Hello, welcome to Booknook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. It's my pleasure to welcome Thomas Mullen to the program. He's got a new book out called The Rumor Game. He joins us on the phone in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. You've been around for a while. I have not read any of your other books, but ha- having read this one, I'm thinking to myself, I better go back and read your other stuff because this is really a great book. How'd you get the idea for The Rumor Game? Well, first of all, th- thanks very much. I got the idea because although I live in Atlanta and I've been living here about 15 years and, and my last few books were set down here, I am a native of New England, born and raised in Rhode Island, and I'd always wanted to write a book set in Boston. Uh, and a few years ago, I just got really interested in the World War II era and was reading a lot of books about you know, America on the home front and what was happening here and just learned a few things about what was going on in Boston that I thought made for a very intriguing you know, crime espionage novel. And this story, we have two major protagonists in this story, and and we know if we read a lot of this stuff that they're eventually going to be drawn together because that's just how it works. Yes. And who are they? Well, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of interlocking storylines. I tend to write books that follow a few main characters back and forth. So the two main characters here are Anne and Devin. Now, Anne is a young, you know, anti-fascist activist who now has a job as a journalist writing articles that disprove harmful war rumors. And because we were at war at the time, there were all kinds of crazy rumors and gossip out there. And her job was to you know, disprove them and, and keep patriotic spirits high. So, for example, one of the rumors that she had to disprove, and this is based on an actual rumor at the time. There was a rumor that if women who had perms worked in a war factory, their heads would explode. So Anne's job is to you know, trace down the source of this rumor and you know, disprove it and assure people in print that it's not true. So she's sort of an anti-disinformation writer. And she is, one of the stories that she's working on winds up overlapping with a murder investigation, and that's where the other main character comes in. Devin Mulvey is one of the first Catholic FBI agents. Um, So he's kind of navigating an an awkward space living in Boston where where the cops don't trust him because he's FBI, and a lot of his fellow FBI agents don't trust him because he's Catholic. But his job is to make sure that there's no sabotage in the war industries. And early on, he's investigating the suspicious death of a factory worker and his investigation and Anne's research into a story about uh, propaganda being passed out at some Boston stores overlap. And these two old friends who lost touch with each other kind of have to carefully uh, work together. Anne is an outsider. Number one, She's supposedly a commie because of her anti-fascist uh, approach, and she's a woman trying to be a journalist, and they would relegate women in those days to the society pages, and she's trying to do stuff that's more hard-hitting. And um, we also have the fact that she's half-Jewish, and that makes her an outsider. And there's a whole Irish thing going on here, and with a name like Mullen, I'm guessing you know a lot about that. Yeah, I'm I'm part Irish and part French Canadian, and so my two characters have some bits of my heritage as well. Yeah, I, I like writing about people that don't fit into you know easy simple boxes. And so yeah, Anne as a journalist at that time, like you said, like 
she's trying to fight against the stereotypes that she should just be working on quote unquote women's pieces and you know, society pages. And so some of the other writers at the fictional Boston newspaper where she works look down at her because she's writing about quote unquote gossip and rumors and they think it's just some silly frippery, but she's really writing, you know, hard hitting news. She's trying to weed out Nazi propaganda and you know disprove it. Um, and also she she grew up thinking she was um, a French Canadian Catholic, but then she about maybe seven or ten years before this book is set, when she's a teenager and her father passed away, she learned from her mother that actually her mother was Jewish. She had just sort of walked away from that element of her life when she married. And so Anne is somebody who grew up thinking she was Catholic, finds out she is actually half Jewish and is trying to navigate that as well and figure out what that means for her. And at a time of rising anti-Semitism and you know, war against the Nazis, these become a big deal. Another key thing to know is the timeline here because we have had Pearl Harbor already, but we really have not engaged in the European theater yet. Yeah, I wanted to set the book in that time period. It's set, I think it's the summer of 43. So, you know, Pearl Harbor occurred, America declared war against Japan, Germany then declares war against us. Um, we are fighting in the Pacific, so a lot of Americans are dying in, in the Pacific at this point. And uh, the North African campaign has been concluded, so there was you know, some American casualties there as well. But the invasion of Sicily, the invasion of the European mainland haven't happened yet. But you know, everybody senses something is coming. Uh, and there were pockets still of, of isolationists in America being for many years, we were not involved in the war. You know, the war was raging in Europe for years before we got involved. And Pearl Harbor is where it finally got America involved. But you know, there was a, law, a strong and vocal anti-war you know, isolationist faction in America. And one of the, not, not to give too much away in the book, but one of the things that the characters uncover is people who still believe that even after Pearl Harbor and even despite the battles in Africa and across Asia, that they can find a way to stop America from invading Europe. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 91.3 WYSO. It's the Book Nook, connecting our community through news, music, and storytelling on the air and online. I am a student of history and this period. And of course, I kept flashing on the fact that our former ambassador to uh, England, Joseph Kennedy, the father of John F. Kennedy and Joe Kennedy Jr. and, and these guys who ended up uh, becoming war heroes in World War II, he was a big-time isolationist. He did not want anything to do with a war in Europe. And I kept flashing on him because you've got a banker in your story who's kind of got that same approach. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, JFK and RFK's father was the ambassador at London at that time, and he was definitely an isolationist. And, you know, letters and other correspondence reveal he was anti-Semitic as well. And he, like a lot of Americans, did not like the idea of America getting involved in this war. Um, and so it caused a lot of uh, awkward moments for the United States having someone like that. He was eventually, I can't remember exactly whether he was recalled or, or just stepped down at the end of a term. But, you know, it got more and more difficult for him to sustain that isolationist stance. And so I wanted to model the character of Devin's father after, you know, some aspects of, of Kennedy at that time. Because, you know, Boston and New York 
had these strong pockets of isolationism that was tied a lot of times to you know Irish Catholics who sometimes didn't really have a big problem with Hitler. There were a lot of people that said, hey, you know, this Hitler guy, he's not so bad. And people like that were more afraid of communism than they were suspicious and flat out anti-Semitic. And so they didn't necessarily see Nazism as an evil thing, which is kind of startling now to realize, but that there were pockets in the country that felt that way. And I wanted to learn more about that and dramatize that. And of course, anybody who reads this is going to be flashing on the present day and thinking, oh yeah, that Victor Orban, he's not so bad. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, like when you write historical fiction, you're always, you're noticing through lines and common threads that link to the present. You know, on the one hand, you're noticing all the things that are different, you know, the different inventions, the different aspects of culture, the different ways in which the genders get along, different etiquette, things like that. That's always really interesting to pick up on when, when you read history and read historical fiction. But then at the same time, you're noticing, wow, a lot of these issues are still with us. And you know, they change a little bit. They evolve here and there, but they endure. And we're going through a time now with rising authoritarianism and more and more Americans seeming like they're okay with having an authoritarian leader. And anti-Semitism has been on the rise. And these issues aren't uh, only happening in America, but they're happening you know, in Europe and a lot of other countries. So it's, a, it's an alarming thing to see, but I think it's also you know, it's interesting to you know, remind oneself of how long these threads are and, and where a lot of these ideas first came from, and to be reminded about you know, how we overcame them in the past. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the Irish thing in Boston and just the fact that a lot of people don't know that the Irish were treated like a a discriminatory minority, that people didn't trust that, you know, you try to rent a place where there were so many Irish moving here and and the sign in the window would say, no Irish. I mean, they really became an insular community. And then a lot of them became police officers. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic, and I wanted to, to delve into that a little bit more. You know, as you mentioned, you know, part of my family is originally from Ireland. Um, and if you are in Boston, it doesn't take long to pick up on the Irish influences everywhere. I mean, that's why the basketball team's called the Celtics, but there's plenty of other stuff. Like, there's a lot of you know, love for Ireland and the city of Boston and New England in general. Um, but yeah, they were you know, oppressed, discriminated against in the late 1800s and early 1900s. They were the new immigrant group that came over and were restricted to living in the, the poorest neighborhoods and working the worst jobs if they could even get them because there were people who would hang, you know, Irish need not apply signs. There was a lot of anti-Irish attitudes from, you know, the, the wealthy ruling class in Boston, which modeled itself after the English, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the British upper class, the Boston Brahmins, they called them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what's interesting for me too, is that, you know, by the forties and, the Irish had established themselves. You know, there were there had been Irish mayors, Irish political leaders of all kinds, uh, Irish business leaders. Yet a lot of people still hung on to that underdog status, and I think you still see elements like that in America. Everybody sometimes it feels like everybody in America wants to claim that underdog status. You know, even white men want to say that they're oppressed these days, that they're the underdogs, even though most financial data will tell you otherwise. And I thought it was interesting to just kind of look at the ways in which a group of people can 
be victims of oppression and be discriminated against, but then later do the same thing to others. I think we would like to think that if you are mistreated, if you're oppressed, if you're discriminated against, that you're never going to do that to somebody else because you're going to see how horrible it is and you're going to hate it and you're going to say, I'm never going to let this happen to somebody else. But unfortunately, history shows that that quite often that's not what happens, that you know, being a victim of oppression does not immunize you against oppressing other people one day. Mm. White men are not oppressed. You are destroying all my delusions. That and the exploding <laughs> heads, the exploding heads. I thought I always thought that was true, too. <laughs> yeah, no, no exploding heads that I know of. <laughs> okay. Let's talk some more about her job and his job. So Anne's job, she's a journalist. She's sort of a self-taught journalist. So before Pearl Harbor, she was working with some, you know, nonprofit groups and advocacy groups to get more Americans to agitate for getting involved in the war, you know, to try to make sure that people understood what a profound danger you know, Nazism was. Because, again, a lot of Americans were isolationists at the time and didn't want to be involved. And now that we are at war, she doesn't really need to do that kind of activism or rabble-rousing anymore. And so she's created a job for herself. She got herself hired at one of the actual Boston newspapers, disproving war rumors. So she has a bunch of sources, people who work in, you know, diners and bars, people who overhear things. Mm-hmm. And she'll check in with them regularly. Like, have you heard any crazy rumor? What, what are people talking about? What, what you know, kind of bogus stories you're hearing. And there, there were a lot of stories. You know, people were nervous about the war. And even though the east coast of the states was not attacked, you know, the west coast had, or Pearl Harbor had been, and a lot of boats that were being sunk in the Atlantic by the Germans, sometimes pretty close to American shores. There were times when U-boats were spotted off the coast of the eastern states. There was a gang of Nazi spies who were arrested by the FBI shortly after they landed. I can't remember if it was New Jersey or New York. It was a very botched German spy operation because mm-hmm. they got caught almost immediately. But it had happened. So you know, people were on the alert. You know, there were blackouts and dimouts in a lot of eastern cities. You know, lights would be extinguished at night so that bombers wouldn't be able to see them and bomb. So even though we weren't attacked on the East Coast, there was – People didn't know that, and there was a lot of fear that it might happen. And so in times of fear and in a time of war, all kinds of crazy stories get bandied about. And so her job is to try to disprove them and like reassure people that, that the worst stories that they're hearing are not true. And Devon is an FBI agent, and he's also Catholic, which is something that makes him kind of an outsider. Yeah, there were a couple of things I found interesting about the FBI at that time, which is why I wanted to create a character like Devin. FBI agents were um, protected from the draft by J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, Hoover was a strong you know, bureaucratic infighter, and he didn't want any of his men to get pulled into army intelligence or just you know, any kind of armed forces. So when I heard that, I thought that was interesting. So if you were an FBI agent in the 40s, you weren't going to get drafted. So Devin has mixed emotions about that. You know, he's an FBI agent. He's doing a good job in a public service, but he also feels a little self-conscious about the fact that he's not actually involved in the war. And he feels like he gets dirty looks on the subways and the sidewalks because at that time, if you were an able-bodied man and you were walking around the city, people are thinking, well, why aren't you, aren't you wearing an army uniform? Why aren't you in the war? So he feels pretty self-conscious about that and he's trying to prove himself. But then, yeah, he's a Catholic and the FBI was a very waspy 
organization for a very long time, and they just started hiring Catholics at this time, 1943. And so because he's Catholic, he feels like the other Boston agents look down on him. You know, they think, oh, he's an alcoholic, he's a papist, we can't trust him. You know, he's going to like, you know, the Roman Pope more than he likes the president, things like that. So he feels disrespected and like he doesn't really fit in there. But then at the same time, as you mentioned, a lot of cops back then were Irish. And so they look at Devin, who's Irish Catholic, but he's an FBI agent. And they're like, well, what are you doing with the feds? Like, that's that's where the Yankees, which is like their word for wasp at the time. Like, that's where the Yankees work. You know, are, are you a hoper? One of those people who goes to sleep Irish and hopes he wakes up as a Yankee? You know, they don't trust him. They see him as kind of a turncoat. So he realizes soon after taking this job that he's kind of in between worlds and, and accepted by neither. And as the story opens... You uh, show us right away that he's also a ladies' man, and and uh, he's very interested in the opposite sex, and and this is a great uh, place to be in Boston with all the the husbands and boyfriends uh, off uh, fighting for our country. He's cruising around. He's exempt from the draft, and uh, you have a very funny situation early in the book, and and I won't get into details, but he's lost his pants. Yeah, the first thing in the book, we meet Devin, he's woken up in bed with a woman, he's late for work, she's still passed out, and he can't find his pants, so he's kind of got a problem. Yeah, I I wanted, you know, I'd written a few books set in Atlanta during the 40s and 50s that dealt a lot with with policing and race, and I'm very, very proud of those books, Darktown is the first, Um, but after writing those, I wanted to make sure that my next book had a little bit more humor in it and felt a little bit more fun. So even though there's a lot of big things going on in this book with, with war and things like that, I, I wanted more moments of comedy to come across. And so that was a very deliberate decision to meet Devin in that situation. But I got the idea partly because you know, when you research that time period in America, again, so many men were away at war that it created this odd environment. There were a lot of lonely women. And also after the war, the divorce rate started to skyrocket. So a lot of couples got married in the early years of the war, kind of, you know, they rushed into it. They married out of haste. And Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of women's case, they married out of guilt or a sense of duty. You know, they felt like, oh, I, I guess I need to marry this guy. He's about to go to war. And then when the war ended and he came home, they realized they didn't really have much in common and they didn't want to be married and it ended. So I figured for a guy like Devin, he's loving the fact that some of them are married, sure, but, you know, they probably didn't really want to get married. So what's the harm? Mm-hmm. Not that I'm justifying that, but that's how he sort of justifies it to himself. Sure. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Thomas Mullen. His new one is The Rumor Game. How many books is it, and how did you get into this uh, writing business? Uh, this is my eighth novel. My first one came out in 2006, and you know I've always wanted to be a writer. I just love telling stories. I, I just think it's a ton of fun. I'm always you know, reading a book, and for as long as I can remember, I've enjoyed writing. I was writing picture books as a kid, and then writing imitation Hardy Boy books as a grade schooler, and I got really into the Spencer novels about a, a private detective in Boston when I was in high school, and just one thing led to another. Um, my first novel was historical fiction set during the 1918 flu epidemic, and I know it sounds crazy because we all have now been through a horrible pandemic, but when I got the idea for that book in the late 90s, what interested me about it was just how different it was. You know, the fact that there was this horrible pandemic that forced everyone to stay home and that people wearing masks in public just blew my mind. I thought, wow, that's a 
great idea for a, a story because um, I modeled uh, the town in the book after some real towns that decided the only way they could stay safe was if they blocked all the roads leading into town and posting armed guards to prevent anyone from coming in. And I just found myself imagining what became the first scene of that book. You know, two guys are standing guard. They don't think anything's going to happen, but one day a lost stranger approaches them, begging them for food and shelter. And he's, he's cold. He's been in the woods for days, but he's also coughing and sneezing. And mm. is he coughing and sneezing because he's sick or is he coughing and sneezing because he's been in the woods for three days? And they have a dilemma. Uh, and that was my first novel. And I, I never thought I would necessarily be, you know, a quote unquote historical novelist. It just happens that the first book that I wrote that was any good and was, was published was historical. And so from there, you know, the majority of my books have been historical. And again, not necessarily by design. It's just, you know, I read a lot and I enjoy reading history. And, and sometimes when you read history, you uncover really fascinating stories and, and fascinating people. And sometimes stories, in my opinion, haven't been shared enough and that people need to know more about. And it gives me an idea to tell an interesting story that will also maybe educate people about something that maybe they didn't know. I love stories that don't have any cell phones. My guest is Thomas Mullen. He joins us <laughs> on the telephone in Atlanta. And this one, to me, reads like a spy novel. You mentioned uh, that you liked uh, Robert Parker's stuff. Who are some of the other writers that you admire or, or emulate? Uh, well, especially you know when talking about this book, I like Philip Kerr, who's a British novelist who wrote a whole series set in Germany before, during, and after World War II. He follows a cop who is not a Nazi and is just basically trying to navigate that world and, and stay alive. Um, spy novels, I mean, John Le Carré, obviously, is, is the best. I, I love his stuff. There's a great series by a Northern Irish writer named Adrian McKinty set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And there, too, it's you know a cop trying to do the right thing, but in just a, a terrible, terrible environment you know, getting flack from both sides, from the Protestants and the Catholics. I, I tend to be drawn to series where you've got you know, your hero, not only are they trying to solve a crime and you know, right or wrong and, and root out an evil, but they find themselves in just a very, very complex, dangerous place. So, so books set in totalitarian countries like uh, Artie, um, what's his name? Oh, Martin Cruz Smith, sorry. Martin Cruz Smith has a series about a cop named Arkady Renko mm -hmm. working in the Soviet Union. And he's a good guy. He's a good detective, but he knows that his bosses are corrupt and he can't trust what he's being told. I just, I really enjoy mysteries that kind of amp up the, the, the paranoia and the suspicion by, by having it not just be about one murder, but really a whole system where things are corrupt. We like a lot of the same writers. Uh, I uh... Awesome. Yeah. When I was reading your book, I was flashing on Bernie Gunther. I had Phil, yeah. I had Phil Kerr on the show a number of times. That was my all-time favorite crime series. And when he died, I was absolutely brokenhearted. In fact, we had an interview scheduled with him about two weeks after he died that they had to cancel. And, uh, and Adrian McDuffie, the Sean Duffies, or I should say yeah. Adrian McKinty, the, the Sean Duffies, Wow, what a great series, and I'm so glad he decided to bring that one back. Have you read the latest one? I literally bought it two days ago at, uh -huh. at a great independent bookstore in North Carolina where I was traveling, so I'm dying to read it. And yeah, Philip Kerr, I mean, I remember where I was when I heard he was dead. I was on a, on a Cub Scout outing with my son. I just happened to check my phone. I said, oh my God, Philip Kerr died? I had no idea he was sick. I haven't read his last yet because I just keep waiting. I don't want the series to end. Um, I just love his stuff, and it was... It, 
so sad that he passed so early. You know, that last book, when when I read it, I thought, you know, he he didn't finish this book. That That's the sense I got. He, he didn't finish it. Ah, that's sad. But it supposedly is complete, but when you read it, you'll go, hmm, seems a little thin. Interesting. And that book, Prussian Blue, have you read that one? Yeah. I think I've read all except the yeah. last one. If you go back into the back of the book, in his acknowledgments, you'll see my name. And that was the biggest thrill I think I've ever had oh, in, in the world of That's books. Awesome. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I finished the book, and I was going through the acknowledgments, and I, I literally screamed and, and woke up my wife. Prussian blue, it's in my hands right now. Yeah, Prussian blue. If you, if you, and he was such awesome. a such a kind man, just an amazing guy. I miss him. Well, you you have a, a great uh, bibliography going there. I'm very impressed, and I'm wondering. I'm I'm guessing someone like you, with your productivity, you probably have another book you're working on. I usually do. Got a book, some other ideas, just kicking things around. Yeah. And it's all top secret right now because you're still mulling it over. I, I am honored over, but one thing I will say is, you know, that series I mentioned about Atlanta in the 40s and 50s, it, it follows both white and black cops at a time when the police department was, was segregated. So, you know, they're trying to solve crimes while not really working together, and I thought that was interesting. So right in that time period, right before the civil rights movement, right before great change occurred, the first book, Dark Town, is 1948, and the next book is 1950, the third was... 53, 54. I decided to step away from that series for a little while just because I wanted to you know, try something else. But mm-hmm. I imagine I will return to that. I think there's still a lot of great stuff, a lot of great stories to be told about Atlanta in the late 50s and the 60s. So at some point, I imagine I will pick that ball back up. So this is a standalone, the rumor game. Probably, but you know, I never say never. I, so it's interesting. I wrote an, another book that didn't work more than a decade ago that had Devin in it. Mm. And some of the same chapters, that chapter you mentioned where him waking up in bed with a woman and not being able to find his pants. Um, the book just didn't work. It was, it was it kind of unfocused. I'd never really written a crime novel before, and it was my first attempt. Uh, I got too long, too many subplots. Ultimately, I had to walk away. And that was a pretty crushing experience, to be honest, to spend that much time on something. Uh-huh. But a few years ago, I just had... And I was like, you know, I still I love that character, and uh, there, there were elements of Anne's character in that book too that I wanted to bring back. Um, and at this point, I'd written some crime stories and, and done well with them, and, and felt like I understood how to do it now. And then I, I learned something else about Boston that got the wheels turning again. And so that other idea that I'd written was set in '45, the end of the war. But I was like, I've got a good idea that would fit in '43. And so, you know, I in a way, resurrected these characters for this novel. So is it a standalone? Maybe, but then again, I've already picked them up once. I might be able to pick them back up again and, and see what happens to them next. Do you it all depends st- on how many people want to read it. Yeah. Do you storyboard? How do you do it? I outline. Uh, sometimes I have a big old white poster board with, with sticky notes. I did that for the Darktown novels because there were so many characters and there were multiple books. Mm. Um, but for, for most books, it's just a Word document, an outline. It's maybe a couple pages long. Sometimes it gets longer. I need just enough of an outline to keep me focused. I've learned that if I have no outline, I go all over the place and the story gets kind of baggy. Um, but my outlines change a lot. They are they are mutable. It's not like I know exactly what's going to happen from the start. 
they might find out that this one chapter that I thought would be 10 pages winds up being four chapters and it's 50 pages mm. or vice versa. So, you know, I kind of adjust as I go. Well, it's a very entertaining read and compelling. It's The Rumor Game. Thomas Mullen wrote it. He's been my guest on the program today. And if I had to pick one thing that stood out to me in the book, it's that there sure were a lot of dirty cops in this story. <laughs> yeah, well, my last books were had a lot of heroic cops in it, and so oh, I wanted okay. to make sure I was complicating things. So you're, you're balancing things in a way in, in the universe. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, it's really been a pleasure talking to you about your book. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for reading. You've been listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. Again, uh, the new one from Thomas Mullen is called The Rumor Game. Thanks for listening. I'm Vic McCunis.